The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta. And today I'm joined by Vanessa Conlon of Wine Access, a Napa-based retailer. Um, Vanessa also was the 52nd person in the U.S. to achieve the prestigious Master of Wine designation. That was in February 2020. Um, so we're going to talk about fine wine today, uh, with a big focus on champagne and sparkling wine, because why not? <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's the holidays. So another reason. Um, thank you, Vanessa, for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Abby, for having me. I'm a big fan. So very excited to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, before we get started, just a reminder to our audience that you can write in questions throughout our session, and I'll try to get to them. So Vanessa, start. let us start out by uh, just giving us a bit of, of insight into what Wine Access is all about. I, I know your tagline is the barrier to the world's best wine isn't price, it's access. Exactly. So what, do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> so, um, so Wine Access, we are the premier online destination for discovering the world's most inspiring wines. So uh, my team and I, you know, our job is curation. So we are sourcing wines from all over the world uh, to offer on our platform, which is e-commerce um, uh, nationally. Um, and as part of that, we do offer all original content as well that we create. Um, so to answer your question, you know, the, the access to wine um, isn't price, it is access. And that is in a couple of ways. One is what we do through, through curation. Um, so certainly you will find some well-known wines on our platform, but we really make an effort also to find discoveries, um, to introduce new regions and producers and tell their stories on our platform. Um, and then also through our content, because it is original, we're not um, regurgitating things we find on Google um, or things you could go read on the producer's website or their tech sheets. We are actually, you know, speaking with them, unearthing these stories, really trying to tell the story behind the label of each bottle. That's, that's great. So it's a good place to explore and buy. Yes. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be getting into what bottles are best for celebrating with friends and family during the holiday season. But I wanted to start with some of your thoughts on just some of the trends in the fine wine sure. um, market, I guess, from, from mm -hmm. a global trade perspective, wines from France's Burgundy region continue to dominate. Um, because they're in demand, people love them, mm -hmm. um, but also because um, according to LiveX, which is this global marketplace for wine, um, it's because the market for Burgundy has broadened. Um, so it not only includes Grand Cru's that cost hundreds to thousands of dollars, but also some wines that are maybe more affordable um, for everyday drinking. So I wonder what your take is on the shifts in the market for Burgundy and, and do you, are you finding it in demand among your consumers as well? Yeah, I remember when I first started studying wine, someone said to me, you know, uh, just beware, you start down this path, all roads lead to Burgundy when, <laughs> when, when you start um, uh, discovering and enjoying wine. So, so absolutely, I think, you know, I think LiveX comment on the, commented on this, but I believe it to be true as well that, you know, we had some really stellar vintages coming out of Burgundy, you know, with um, 18, 19, certainly, um, at 20 was a little variable and then 21 was was very difficult. So I think a lot of collectors are 
buying up the 18 and 19s now um, okay. to to seller, which of course is going to drive scarcity, and with scarcity comes price increases. Um, so, so absolutely. And then I think you know, with Pinot Noir in general, you know, we talked about uh, Maison wines or what I've seen from just around the world is there is also a trend for kind of lighter, fresher drinking wines, mm. um, food friendly. We've seen a lot of, a lot of um, appetite for that. I mean, there certainly is no shortage of collectors of big, bold, rich wines as well, but I'm definitely seeing a trend towards those lighter and in some cases, lower alcohol wines. And so Pinot Noir kind of fits the bill for that. Exactly. And mm. what are the regions of the world that have been of interest to, to consumers? So, I mean, the classics continued to remain classic. I mean, Napa Valley, certainly Bordeaux, Burgundy, as we discussed, Champagne, um, you know, Tuscany, Piedmont, you know, the ones that we would expect. But then I have seen um, a lot of interest sort of the, in more under the radar or sort of old ancient regions that are new again, like the country mm -hmm. of Georgia. Um, yeah. Georgia and Armenia, I've seen, I've seen a lot of interest in those. We've actually offered some um, Armenian wines on our platform and our members snatched them up and gave them great ratings. So wow. that's really, that's really exciting to see. And then of course, you know, the Guadalupe, um, Patagonia, uh, just sort of the, I think there's a lot of fun in, in, in these sort of new discoveries. Again, some of them are actually ancient <laughs> yeah. uh, regions, but, but they feel new, you know, and, sure. and there's been a lot of investment in quality in those regions as well. And so, and, and also because they aren't the big marquee wine regions, you can find often really, really great values. Um, and, and do consumers think about the wines in terms, in terms of regions? Is that, is that usually what you find that they, that they go for region first, grape second, or? It's a, it's a good question. I don't have data on that. Um, mm. But, but I would say, I mean, I think just speaking from my personal journey and then, um, what I have seen with others is I do feel like often it starts with variety. And as you explore that variety across regions, you hone in on, on which region is your favorite or speaks to you. Um, so I think it can be both, but I think it's, yeah, I think it starts with variety and leads to region. And then people tend to be pretty loyal from there. So in Georgia and Armenia, what are the, what are the grapes uh, that are attracting interest? Um, um, Rokitsitelli and uh, Saparavi in yeah. Georgia, of course. And it's okay. interesting be because, you know, orange wine is has been sort of, you know, trendy over the last several years, which of course is like, you know, that, that is how wines were made in Georgia yeah. <laughs> in, you know, centuries ago, not not for a style region reason, but because they didn't have destemmers, frankly. So, <laughs> you know, it all went into the clay pot together and fermented and you came out with a, you know, with a, a, a white wine that ended up being, you know, amber or, or orange. So, um, right. and, and that, that was, I was, I did have the opportunity to travel there a few months ago and it was really exciting to see, you know, it's still a very traditional, um, region, but there is definitely a focus on, on, you know, hygiene technology, um, making different styles of wine. I think they'll always mm. do the, um, Quevery rinds, um, uh, right. the clay pots, but, but there's also a lot of, you know, stainless steel now and, and oak fermentations as well. So very, very exciting region to watch. Interesting. Well, I had a good Saparavi not long ago from the Finger Lake. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So it's <laughs> funny that grapes are showing up other places. <laughs> um, we have a listener who at her name is, I think of her, I'm not sure, but Padmini who asked about Chianti. Um, ah, okay. So is there anything you can, you know, maybe give us some insight about, about Chianti recommendations? Like if you're looking at Chianti, what, what should you think about? 
Sure. Well, of course, um, if you're a fan of of Chianti, the 2019 vintage is fantastic. Um, mm. So you'll see that in the marketplace. And I would definitely recommend buying that. Um, you know, within Chianti, you know, Chianti, Chianti Classico, Gran Selezione. So depending on your quality level, what you're looking for. But um, I have a producer I'm quite fond of, uh, Castel in Vila. Um, they're uh, in uh, Berardenga. And um, they typically hold their bottles back in at least an additional year than their peers. Mm. Um, and it's a, it was kind of a, a, a passion that started. It was a very wealthy couple, actually, that had a home in Rome and came out to Tuscany sort of as a, you know, vacation home and, you know, played around with making some wine. And as often happens, uh, they completely fell in love with it and, you know, gave up their home in Rome and, and dedicated their lives to, to making wine there. But it's a, there's a beautiful producer. So highly recommend. Could you spell that for us? Sure. Um, Castell, so C-A-S-T-E-L-L, I-N, and then V-I-L-L-A. I can also drop it in the chat. Okay, that's great. Um, So what can you tell us about the vintages that are going to be hitting the market soon, the style and quality of vintages from, I guess, various regions around, around the world? So I think what is going to be exciting about next year is we actually have a lot of good news. We have a lot of good vintages to great vintages that are going to be hitting the market. Um, The one that comes to mind right away, I live in Napa Valley, it's my home, is of course the 2021 vintage from Napa, which by all accounts was outstanding, slightly lower in yields, but very, very high in quality and especially significant because as Abby, as you know, and I'm sure many of your viewers do as well, you know, we had... um, very devastating fires in 2020, right. which made it uh, difficult, if not impossible, for many or most producers to to, to make wine at all. Um, so definitely, you know, we saw at Wine Access, our, our consumer base really loves Napa Cab. And it was, it was a, this last year has been tough. This is when we would start to see them, you know, hit the market and uh, it left kind of a big, a big void. So mm-hmm. great vintage coming out, you know, after, after a year off, um, uh, could potentially lead to some price increases since it hasn't been in the market. Um, wineries are going to be probably incentivized to sell direct more than to the trade um, because of course they'll sell at full retail um, to, to their direct consumers. So hmm. we'll see how that, how that manages in terms of supply. Um, also good news coming from Bordeaux. Um, so of course, 18 and 19 vintage, fantastic. We'll start to see the 20 um, next year. The 20 also fantastic quality uh, alcohols can be a bit lower. So the overall perception is that it's a bit of a lighter vintage, but uh, quality wise, it's it's fantastic. Um, we also had kind of a big void last year in um, the Loire Valley, particularly Sancerre, mm-hmm. uh, because the 2020 vintage, which would have, uh, excuse me, 2021 vintage, which would have been in the market, uh, was severely um, diminished by weather conditions. But the 2022 will be coming out. So if any of you kind of missed seeing your favorite producers uh, on retailers' shelves or online, I think you'll you'll begin to see them coming around as well. Um, other news, um, I, I was actually just in um, in Tuscany in Montalcino. I was able to taste the 18 vintage of uh, Brunello, which will be released on January 1st mm-hmm. officially. And um, I would say it's, um, it is a overall lighter vintage. It was, it's very elegant. I find it very balanced, but if you're looking for kind of that powerhouse of like 2016, it's a bit more elegant and nuanced mm-hmm. than that. I think it'll be a great, people are calling it a, a restaurant vintage because it is drinkable now 
Um, I do, I do think it has age potential, but it's definitely one that you can enjoy now um, for its sort of elegance and freshness. That's great. That's a lot of exciting things to look (laughs) forward to. Yes. (laughs) That's good. Um, So uh, I want to turn to champagne and um, which is our go-to celebratory wine for the holidays. Um, And I was wondering if you could start by giving us just a little primer on what sets champagne apart. Um, Perhaps about the sparkling wines or just in general, like what are the grapes um, that are, that typically appear in champagne and, um, and just the various styles. That exists. Absolutely. No, I, I'd love to. I, I have a, a deep passion for champagne. So, um, so of course, you've, you've probably, I've seen some funny memes about this too, comparing various things to sparkling wine that is not from the champagne region. Um, so, but, but it is true. So, you know, it is only champagne if it is from the region of champagne in France. Um, you can make traditional method sparkling wine or method champenoise. Uh, anywhere really in the world and you'll find it many places you know northern california uh, makes some beautiful traditional method wines but champagne is its own entity um it is one of the most northerly growing regions it's cold it's not per- particularly hospitable <laughs> region for <laughs> for growing grapes um yeah. so you know most of the grapes are planted on slopes but you know will face the sun um it has a very chalky soil which is kind of ideal um not just in champagne but has a great um water retention but also drainage capacity so you have this like sort of beautiful balance there it's also light in color and it can reflect heat up into the vines which is important because it is a very very cold region um in general we're talking uh pinot noir meunier both of those are black grapes and chardonnay um we don't need to go down a rabbit hole now there actually are a couple other permitted varieties but they're very very rarely seen um so really when we talk about the champagne it's it's those big three um, and there is something about champagne. There are, you know, outstanding traditional made sparkling wines elsewhere. And there is also something that is just magical about that region that cannot, it cannot be replicated. Um, so, <laughs> so while there is high quality elsewhere, absolutely to be found, I will say there, there is an ethereal quality to champagne that, um, that is like, that is like none other. Um, but so when you're looking, when you're talking about styles, there's a couple of things to look for. And I'm actually really glad you asked me this question because um, I think there can be a lot of sort of names or uh, abbreviations or numbers or things on, on a bottle of champagne that can seem very mysterious or intimidating or complicated. But the truth is once you actually learn just a few things, it's actually becomes quite easy to understand what is in the bottle and therefore begin to know what to buy based on that uh, and have a pretty good indication of, of if it's going to be something that you like. So to start just with, with styles. Um, so as I mentioned, there's Chardonnay, which is a white grape variety, and then Meunier and Pinot Noir, which are black grape varieties. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, it, you can make a white wine from a black grape. You know, if you were to, to bite it in half, let's even say you have a table grape, the flesh will be pale. So if you press the juice off of the skins, you can actually produce a, a white wine from from a black grape. And so there are kind of, if you see uh, Blanc de Noir on the label, that is what that means. It means white from black, meaning it has, you know, either uh, Meunier or Pinot Noir or both. Um, if you see Blanc de Blanc, white from white, that means it is all Chardonnay. Uh, and then of course you will often see 
two or all three, you know, blended together. Um, but you'll see either a, you know, a, a, a white wine or a rosé wine from Champagne. You're not going to see, you know, you might find a, um, a dark sparkling wine from, let's say, Lambrusco or Brachetto or even sparkling Shiraz, but you're not going to find that. Yeah. You're not going to find that in Champagne. Um, so that's a good place to start. Um, of course, there are a couple of other things you can look for. Vintage versus non-vintage or multi-vintage. So a vintage Champagne will have the year on the label itself. And that, of course, means that all of the grapes um, from that, it's all the grapes from that particular vintage alone. But Champagne as a region is actually very well known for producing multi-vintage or non-vintage style wines um, for consistency of style. Uh, across many, many years. Uh, this requires a lot of sort of planning and uh, in the winemaking process. It requires holding back reserves and sometimes of years up to decades of wine so that they can blend each year to create the same stylistic um, qualities. But I remember, Abby, uh, for years, I would only see Envy for non-vintage on wine lists. And I've told this story before, but I remember you know, several years ago, I went to a, you know, a nice restaurant, and I'm flipping through their list, and I saw Envy. And I thought, wow, how embarrassing for them, they have this typo in their, <laughs> in their wine list, but, um, you know, come to learn that that there has been a trend, instead of calling it non-vintage, to calling it multi-vintage, because of course, it's not that there aren't vintages in it, it's just a blend of, of many vintages together. Uh, so, so those two are, are good styles to understand. Non-vintage or multi-vintage tends to be meant for earlier consumption. You don't necessarily need to hold it back, whereas vintage champagne definitely can age and will, in, in many cases, reward you uh, for your patience with the aging process. And then there's also the, the dosage or the sweetness levels. So um, basically, with the champagne production, there are, you know, two fermentations, you have you start with one fermentation and a still baseline, and then second fermentation is initiated. And that happens in the bottle in the bottle, and then it rests on the lees. And at the end of the process, when they're ready to send it to market, um, it's what's called disgorgement. And it's how they get the yeast that or the lees out of the bottle. So you don't have a cloudy wine. Um, and at that disgorgement point, they have the option of adding a little bit of sweetness to the bottle. And the reason why that's done um, is often not to actually have a sweet wine, but it's just to present an overall balance. Because again, these wines can be just absolutely ripping in acid. I mean, this is a cold mm -hmm. region. And so often cases that sweetness added isn't even really perceptible as sweetness. It just adds to kind of complexity balance. Um, but if you are looking for a particularly dry style of wine, you can look for ones that are non non dosage or brut nature mean the same thing, meaning there's no sweetness added mm. uh, at bottling. And then you can go from brut or extra brut brut, um, which is the, the uh, level of, of dosage at bottling. So it's a little confusing in that anywhere from zero to 12 grams per liter is considered brut. Um, under six is extra brute. And then of course, under three would, would be brute nature. So all those things, I know I just talked a lot. Um, so there might be questions, but those, those are just three things that can really, really help you understand what's in the bottle. And then ideally, of course, if you're going to like it. Right. Um, one thing um, I wanted to ask about were small grower producers in Champagne. Yes. So a lot of people know about Dampagnon or Co. you know, there's a lot of names out there that we that people know, yes. but, um, but there's a lot of small grower producers 
and they've been making and selling wine to a lot of acclaim for a bunch of years now. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, and so these are grow producers, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, who in the past only sold their grapes to big houses. Yes. Um, so I'm curious what you think of them, if there's any you would recommend. And one more question is, and this came from a listener who asked about recommendations for mid-tier mid price in terms of price wine okay. from Champagne. And I'm wondering if, if this is a category, small grower producers, where you would find some of those mid-tier priced wines. You, you absolutely can. You'll also find very expensive grower uh, wines as well. Mm. Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad you asked me this question. So um, for anyone uh, not familiar with sort of the business of Champagne, as Abby mentioned, you know, a lot of uh, producers there or, or will grow grapes and they can sell them to some of these larger houses because some of these big houses like the Dom Perignons, they produce a lot of volume. So they're buying from many growers around the region um, to, to make their to make their champagne. Or you, you have growers who might grow and sell some of their fruit to the big houses and save some back from themselves. Or you have what we're now calling like grower producers who are basically growing, growing and making their uh, growing the fruit and making their own wines. And so in these instances, you can often find you can often find some more unique. You can find individual expressions that you might not find in the larger houses. One distinction I just uh, wanted to make, though, is it doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other. Mm. Um, you know, if you think of, you know, Dom Perignon or Krug or some of these well-known, you know, very high quality, they're not growers. Um, so it doesn't mean that, you know, one is good or one is bad or, you know, um, but it does mean that you can find some more unique expressions, definitely, when when you look for growers. And to answer, it actually it leads great into the, the question from your viewer, is you will often be able to find some some great values there because you're sort of, you're not buying the, the brand name. Right. In, in that case. So I have a, a great example. So there's a producer called M. Brunion. I actually have this on, on Wine Access as a grower. Um, and Alain and Valerie Brunion, uh, lovely couple. Their cat Luna, very sweet as well. Um, <laughs> but they, they're in Ecoy in Montagne de Rem, and they sell a lot of their fruit to, to Krug and Dom Perignon. But they also hold back um, some as well and, and, and make their own. Um, and more and more these days, they're, they're leaning towards, towards holding back more for their own production. But their champagnes run around the you know, $45 range and mm. you know, outstanding quality. Alain is actually the president of the Growers Association in his village. So talking about you know, um, vineyard uh, sort of meticulousness, like he's who everybody goes to for advice. Um, there's another producer that's new to the market called, um, new to the US market, I should say, called Grumier, which also can run from about $50 uh, up into some more expensive bottlings. But I'm, I'm a huge fan. He's from the uh, Valley de la Marne. Um, so fantastic values there. And I will say also, particularly with Grumier's, a very sort of individual expression. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you're serving champagne at, during the holidays at a dinner party, um, mm -hmm. well, actually, I'm going to say, I'm going to back up and say, ask a, about a holiday party. Like if you're, okay. if, is that a, what kind of uh, style of champagne is best suited for that sort of thing? You have 25, 50 people. What do you serve? So I would recommend one, <laughs> just mm. because, especially as parties get more um, boisterous in the evening, uh, people maybe or forget what's in their glass, or you'll end up being you know, a, a blender all of a sudden by accident, um, because you, you've got two in the same glass. So 
I recommend one if you're having a large group. Um, and then personally for large groups, Magnums, I mean, there's, it, even if it's not champagne, if it's another style of wine, you can buy Magnums of Prosecco, you know, as well. But for parties, there's nothing that says celebration like a big bottle. So I, I love that. Um, stylistically, um, I think that's a very good question because we were talking earlier about dosage um, and the very, very dry styles like the Brut Natures, they tend to be, they can be quite austere um, and they can benefit from food because mm. of that. I think for a group, if you have a mix of people who are maybe only, you know, sipping, you have a, some people are eating. Um, if you have maybe, you know, an extra Brut to a Brut style can be a little bit more of a crowd pleaser. And what I'd love to say about champagne too, in general, is it's very gastronomic. So I know we often think of it just as sort of like start the evening off with a toast, you know, um, but it actually can carry through a lot of foods. The, the acidity is great with fat. It's mm. great with salty foods. So things like, you know, popcorn, even um, chips, my favorite sort of home luxury is like um, caviar and creme fraiche on a potato chip. With uh, with champagne can can be great, but things like fried chicken as well, you know, tempura, etc. So it's very very versatile. Beginning of the meal, through the meal, and then if you've spent time with me, you probably know I also like to end the meal with champagne. <laughs> 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 it's a great. It sort of cleanses the palate, you know, the yeah, acidity. Yeah. So you end feeling a little bit like lighter and fresher than right. than a dessert wine. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it, um, Steve, our listener, who asked about. Um, mid-price champagnes also asked about dessert wines after dinner. And so I, you just answered that question, but is, are there any other dessert wines you, you would uh, lean to for? Oh, certainly. And I, and I, and I don't mean to imply that I don't, that I don't like them or appreciate them, but um, yeah. if I do want to sort of leave a little bit with my palate feeling cleansed, I do like champagne. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, so turn is like liquid gold, of course, you know, the dessert wine from Bordeaux. I mean, um, I'm also a huge fan of Tokai, which is also a Botrytis wine, but from Hungary tends to be yeah. a little bit higher in acidity and just a tad lower in alcohol mm. um, than Sautern. So if you haven't, if you like Sautern or you like Botrytis type dessert wines and you haven't tried Tokai, I would highly recommend it. Um, that's great. <laughs> um, what about red wine at a holiday party? Is that something you would do? And if so, what would you go for? I would absolutely do it. The only reason not to is if you have a white carpet that you're very worried about. <laughs> <laughs> or a white couch, right? <laughs> or a white couch. Or a white couch. Yeah. So I do yeah. understand sometimes that that is a concern, but but absolutely. I mean, especially for the holidays when, you know, temperatures are cooler and people tend to go for sort of warming, rich, bolder style wines. I mean, red wine is perfect. We were talking about Pinot Noir um, earlier. I think that's, right. that's a really great choice as well, because it's the tannins are low enough that you don't, you know, it, it can pair with a number of different foods, but you can just drink it on its own. You don't have to have something to kind of soften the tannins like you would sometimes with something like, you know, a Barolo or, you know, a big Napa cab sometimes is, is, is tough to have more than one glass of. So I think Pinot Noir is great, but I'd also love to put, um, a word in for Syrah. Mm. Um, I, I find often that, um, Syrah tends to be underappreciated and I'll, um, I'll hear people describe what they want in a glass of Cabernet. And I think we really just described Syrah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, and what would be the difference? I mean, what, what, uh, in what way? What, like what, okay. what is the thing? There? Yeah. So, so generally Syrah has, um, slightly sort of softer, lower tannin. It still is not a low tannin variety, but you know, Cabernet can be quite sort of muscular, 
Um, and, and so it tends to be a little um, more versatile that way. But to me, Syrah just has this glorious array of aromas that I can almost get lost in. You know, it has, you know, smokiness, violets, you know, you can get anise and um, you can often get this sort of like smoked meat note to it, you know, very, very perfumed. So I find really it's, it's one of the most interesting red wines, I think, just to sort of sit there and enjoy and savor. And then of course it's, yeah. it's delicious and versatile as well at the table. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a favorite of mine as well. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is, a, I'm going to step away from celeb the celebratory theme for a minute because I have a couple questions from viewers. Uh, Rita asked about areas of the world that, um, um, and, and you, you talked about this actually a little bit at the beginning about Georgia and Armenia, but are there, are there some uh, interesting areas of the world where there are discoveries that could be um, I guess maybe not as, as well known. So, yeah, yes, no, I, I love that question. Um, I think it's not certainly not a new region, but um, Etna in Sicily, mm. you know, it's the world's oldest active volcano, uh, volcano um, it, it is producing really outstanding wines um, and they tend to be very well priced. Uh, they're really beloved by sommeliers because they're very food friendly. They tend to have a really bright acidity, um, but you can find Etna Rosso or Etna Bianco um, where you're talking about, you know, Norella Mascalese often with the reds or um, Caracante with the whites or Cararato, um, which are indigenous grape varieties to Etna. But I, I would definitely, I would definitely seek those out. Um, if you're, if you're an Italian drinker, but even if you're not, um, I think Etna Rosso in, in particular, if you're, if you like lighter bodied reds like Pinot Noir, it's a great discovery wine um, to go from there. So I'm, I'm kind of on a kick right now. Yes. On, oh, interesting. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds cool. Um, and, and actually Hal, another listener asked um, about Chilean and Argentinian wines and um, any, just any thoughts on that on the, on those uh, wines coming out of those regions, more affordable, maybe. Yes. I mean, you can, you can definitely spend some money, you know, Alma Viva, the iconic wine is from Chile, mm -hmm. which is quite, quite expensive. Um, yeah. So you can, you can certainly find um, a gamut of both, but yes, tends, tends to have um, great value. Um, you know, certainly I know we've seen, if we're talking Argentina, we always think about, you know, Malbec, but there's Bonarda, you know, if you like white wines, Tarantes is a great, uh, a great option to try. And they're also making, you know, Pinot Noir as well in Argentina, which can be, can be quite charming. And then, I mean, Chile has been great values for years. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I like um, Limari, which is in the north. They have some like outstanding sort of uh, Chablis-like Chardonnays that they're making there for fantastic value as well. Wow. Uh, there's so much once you start. There's so much. <laughs> it's actually hard to limit it. <laughs> yeah. So um, we, we unfortunately have to end, but I have a, just wanted to ask you before we go about your favorite style of wine. So I think it's champagne, if I could answer that question for you. <laughs> but yes. um, is, uh, is that true? And, and if so, what are you expecting you'll toast the new year in the new year with? Yeah. So, um, so yes, you're right. I love champagne. <laughs> I definitely will be toasting with that. Um, there's a, the, the producer, um, Grumier, who I mentioned earlier mm. has a fascinating style of wine. It's a Solera system. Um, so, you know, normally when you think of, um, blended wines across vintages in champagne, you're holding the individual vintages and then you'll blend, but he's actually putting vintages into one barrel. So it becomes this amalgamation of many, many vintages that he keeps adding to over time. So it's very hard to find, I think only like 
a hundred bottles or something made it into the US market, I was able to grab one and I've been waiting. So <laughs> that's going to be my celebratory wine. But what are you drinking? That's great. Um, <laughs> I don't know yet. That's a good question. I should have <laughs> thought of that. Um, I, I did uh, go to the Finger Lakes a year ago and uh, tried some really great sparkling wines from there. So maybe one of those I'll, I'll open up. Uh, there's some surprising yeah. good, good sparkling wine coming out of the Finger Lakes. Exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Vanessa. I really appreciate uh, the time that you spent with us and all the great, great insights. It's really fun. Um, and that's it. I mean, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm, and thanks for the great questions from the viewers as well. Yeah. There were, there were some good, great ones. Um, and join us again on Monday when Baron Senior Deputy Editor Ben Levison, Senior Writer Nicholas Jasinski, and Al Root discuss the outlook for financial markets. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.